last message in a series, Why Things Go Wrong and How to Put Them Right. It is related to the topic of guidance. I said I wanted one more week on that, but it's a particular kind of guidance. How to receive guidance, how to receive blessing from the Lord when you've been mistreated by people. When we started talking about where problems come from and how it happens, let me just do a survey before I go too far. I'm talking about people in the room. How many of you are warm? Let me see your hand. How many of you are cool? Let me see your hand. How many of you feel like, you know what, there couldn't be a more perfect temperature anywhere on God's earth? Let me see your hand. All right. I absolutely give up. It was about divided into thirds, and, you know, there you go. How to receive a blessing from the Lord when you've been mistreated by people. I have three texts, and they deal with the same theme, but they don't say the same thing. And I want to talk about the distinction there. Isaiah 53, 6 and 7. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Quite a picture. Um, We dress things up, all religions dress things up. When you see uh, churches and places of worship that are more uh, ornate and oriented more around uh, imagery, it will be, it's gold, it's, it's, it's uh, high, it's vaulted, and there are beautiful images of Jesus done in marble and gold and and. and this isn't the image. I, I don't mean to be um, gross, but like a, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. When you, when you think of Jesus and you think of his death for you, what kind of picture do you have? Because the picture that Isaiah paints is what you might see hanging in a butcher's window, a lamb. Do you get what I'm saying? A lamb led to slaughter. The second text is Acts chapter 9, 29 to 33. Interesting story. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah. That's the passage we were talking about. Reading Isaiah the prophet. And he asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away? No kids, no family. Who can describe his generation? Just cut off. By the way, whenever there is... This is a different topic entirely, and I probably shouldn't do this. But whenever you get into the discussion two Sunday mornings ago, is it fair of God to expect 
gay Christians to live celibate lives in the body of Christ. I always think it is just highly significant that Jesus, certainly not gay, but Jesus spent his whole life never having any sexual relations with anyone. You know what I'm saying? You have, you have, a, you have a Lord who understands that particular uh, slice of what life would be like. But that's not what we're talking about tonight. The third text, 1 Peter 2, 21 to 23. Do you have that text? Let's read it all together, okay? For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so, Jesus, we're grateful to gather around your word and invite you to direct our thoughts. Holy Spirit, come and open our lives to your word. and Give us understanding, but more than an intellect that can recognize propositional truth. But give us hearts that are open to be corrected and open to be humbled and open to take up our cross and follow Jesus in kingdom life. That's what we want. If that's what you want, say the amen. So the disciple of Jesus is called to remember not only is he saved by the death of Jesus on the cross, true enough, but he's called to live all of his life by the pattern of the cross. So there's the atonement in the cross, and then there's the pattern of the cross. That is what Jesus meant when he said we all must take up our cross every day and follow him. So in other words, the cross doesn't just have to do with getting to heaven. It is that, to be sure. But it also has to do with living on earth. Not just getting to heaven, but living on earth. And I can't have the cross for one purpose, the forgiveness of my sins, the appeasement of God's wrath, uh, the gift of forgiveness, and eternal life. I can't just have the cross for eternal benefit without also having the cross as a pattern for daily living. The, the grace that comes for this is also the grace that leads us to live in this world under the pattern of the cross. Eternal redemption is quite literally tied to daily cross-bearing. Now, we looked at three texts and I said they deal with the same subject. Of course, the subject is the way Jesus suffered without retaliation. All of those texts, Isaiah, Acts, 1 Peter, deal with that. But they're not all saying the same thing and they're not all written for the same purpose. They, they look at the same subject but from three very different angles. First, there's something so basic to the very character and nature of our Lord that it is actually the way the prophet Isaiah, writing what, I mean, scholars would vary, seven, eight hundred years before Jesus arrives on the scene, seven hundred or so years before Jesus arrives on the scene, the prophet identifies what 
this Redeemer will look like. Now think about that just for a minute. He will, to be sure, we all know the verses in Isaiah, the tremendous verses, Isaiah 53, how he will be the sacrificial lamb, he will, he will uh, bear the wrath of Father God in those striking words. It, it pleased the Father to crush him. We don't even know what to do with sentences like that. And so there will be grace, there will be forgiveness, there will be atonement. That's what the cross accomplishes. But, but from the human side of things, you, you don't see that. You see a man dying on the cross, sure, but you don't see, not with the physical eye, you don't see the process of forgiveness. You don't see guilt erased in the heart. You don't see the establishment of a new nature. You don't see the satisfaction of Father God as our sins are punished in Jesus Christ. That's not visible to any of us. How will people recognize Jesus? The prophet says, here's how you will know who this is. Because when he goes through all of this, he won't retaliate. And that you'll be able to see. That will be the visible part of what Jesus will demonstrate when he comes. He would be marked not only by the fact that he died, but he would be marked by the fact that he died humbly when he was so horribly and bitterly mistreated. That's the Isaiah text. Then you have the Acts text. We see how the way Jesus responded when he was mistreated came to have a very central place in the spreading of the gospel beyond the Jewish world. The reason Philip had such an open door to reach this meditating Ethiopian was was the stunning impact of this Isaiah text on this Ethiopian's mind. It was the way Jesus responded to the mistreatment that this Ethiopian noticed and wanted Philip to talk to him about it. That was, that was the part of Isaiah's prophecy. We read, we read the Ethiopian's word, the part that he quotes, and it's the part about how he's like, like, like a sheep is dumb, doesn't speak, silent. We don't use that anymore. But the idea of not expressing anything, not Not any anger, not any bitterness, not any retaliation. And something in this Ethiopian that grabs his attention, he calls Philip, and this becomes a very integral part of how the gospel gets spread in the world. This wasn't the only time that happened. It would be hard to even estimate the impact of the Apostle Paul on the development of Christianity around the world. What a key player the Apostle Paul is. We all know the story of Saul slash Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, the bright light and all of that. But there's something that happened a lot earlier that had a real impact on Saul. He was standing in the crowd, apparently, when Stephen follower of Jesus, who wouldn't renounce Jesus, and much like what happened today with ISIS. Did you hear, by the way, did you hear in Pakistan the the, um, Christian woman? And I mean not just some Coptic cultural, I mean a professor of faith in Christ, 
a real Christian woman, is sentenced to death because she drank from uh, a devout Muslim man's cup and she had a drink from it. And she's sentenced to death. She'll be executed. So what the point I'm making is this is, this is like that. Here's a man in, in ISIS fashion who's being stoned to death and he's doing it for his faith in Jesus Christ. All right? And so there's a man standing there watching this happen. The man's name is Saul. And as he watches and as, as he sees these rocks start to hit Stephen, and he crumbles to the ground in a heap, but they don't stop throwing the stones. And they will do it until he's dead. And Saul stands there and he sees this man look up. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't, they don't know what they're doing. And so, Saul, it clicks. He sees another person, much like our Lord, and he sees the way he responds to total mistreatment, abuse, rights demolished, deserving nothing. And he sees this man who doesn't retaliate, doesn't strike back. And we'll never know how many people have come to Christ reading the Gospels and then reading the epistles where Paul explains the gospel of Jesus Christ. How was the church affected by that? And would we have had it had there not been a Stephen who just said, Father, forgive them. So, Isaiah text. Identifying Jesus. Identifying Jesus. You'll recognize him. He's the one that doesn't respond when mistreated. The spreading of the gospel. Spreading of the gospel. The Ethiopian. And Philip explains that text. Saul, watching the death of Stephen. The identifying of our Lord, long before he came. The spreading of the gospel and the impact of redemption. And third, the text in 1 Peter. Peter gives instruction to a young church that was feeling the heat of persecution and, and hatred. So these new Christians were starting to get either discouraged, maybe discouraged, or maybe some were getting angry. There are different temperaments, different ways in which we respond, and Peter takes them to task for it, strikingly to me. I don't think if we were alive, we would have been... If Peter served in a church, there would be leaders, maybe a board, that wouldn't have been very happy with Peter, because Peter doesn't seem to offer these persecuted Christians an ounce of sympathy. You poor people. Boy, I don't blame you for feeling the way you feel. They don't get any of that from Peter. They don't get a bit of that from Peter. After all, it, it's their fault, not yours, Peter could have said. You didn't do anything wrong, you're just following Jesus. Can't believe the treatment you're getting just for that. And Peter doesn't do that. Calls them to remember their conversion. He calls them to remember Christ, the way of Christ the way he responded to mistreatment, and the way they must respond. Apparently, the idea is you, you have to respond like Jesus. That's what taking up your cross is all about. It's kind of the forgotten part of the gospel message. You, it's not optional. 
you have to respond the way Jesus responded to mistreatment. Why? Because that's how saving grace manifests itself in the human heart. So when I read that, I'm thinking, how can I make this work in my life? I have a couple of steps. Let's go over together. One. Before I can solve the problem of a retaliating spirit in my heart, I must approach the problem from a scriptural perspective rather than the world's. The hard part about following Christ in a culture like ours is we have come, we have come in the last 20 years especially, we have come to so desperately admire self-assertiveness in people. The person this world admires is the person who doesn't let people walk all over him or her. The person who knows how to make his or her own way. The person who speaks up. The person who protests. Give anybody a sign about anything and they're a hero. That's the way our culture thinks. Why? I'm putting myself out there. Jesus can't be followed until that kind of life is confronted. The thinking of this world, and it's implanted in our minds in so many different ways, the thinking of this world is bent and it's warped by the fall. It's like those... You know, you go to the exhibition and you see those crazy mirrors that distort everything when you look in them? That's, that's the viewpoint. That's the lens. That's, that's, that's the values of our warped culture. They don't reveal truth. They distort the way things really are. And one of the prime ways in which the enemy through the voice of culture, can suck Christians into a non-Christian lifestyle is simply telling us that it's our job to stick up for our rights. See, there are sins that we get led into. There are sins that we commit, and they, I'm not saying they aren't tempting, and I'm not saying Christians don't commit them. I'm saying when Christians commit them, there's a sense, at least at the beginning, where we have that feeling of going against our conscience. Most people, even in the early stages of, of an affair, some kind of immorality, some kind of dishonesty, a lie, I know conscience can get hardened where it doesn't guide anymore, but in the early stages, there's that sense of going against some kind of standard that we know is right and true. Even non-religious people. God has put that in our hearts. But this, this temptation of asserting our rights when something isn't our fault, when we've been mistreated, when we've been wronged, and we respond in anger, in striking back, in getting even, in just a quiet, smoldering resentment. When that kind of thing happens, it doesn't feel wrong. It feels perfectly just. It feels right. It feels like it's the way it ought to be. That's the particular danger of that kind of heart and that kind of attitude. Compliant people are weak people. Protesting people are strong people. We 
We just admire the person who throws open the window and says, I'm mad as anything. I edited. I'm not going to take it anymore. And so that's the problem. In this kind of world, in this kind of world, it's very hard to follow a leader who, like a lamb before its shearers is dumb, he did not open his mouth. Who respects that kind of leader? So, the first step toward God's solution to personal mistreatment is to expose the sin of striking back and to renounce the myth of avenging personal rights. Watch for the way the world tries to pump this message through movies, through media, through music, through songs, through videos. Watch the way this gets fed into your cranium and don't swallow everything that comes your way. Two, alert your mind to concentrate your attention on the responsibility you have rather than the fault of the other person. I said earlier in this series, if you're going to follow Jesus in a world like ours with circumstances that we face, the only, the only genuine opportunity you have for Christ-likeness is in your response to life. Because you can't control most of the things that happen to you. You can only control the way you respond to them. Discipleship is revealed in your responses. Everybody say that with me. Discipleship is revealed in your responses. That's where it is. The only chance you get to follow Jesus is in your responses. Jesus lays down this principle in the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew 7, 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own. Now, I, I think in this kind of a situation, you see the truth of that verse. When I am mistreated, the actions of my offender seem a lot bigger and a lot more important than my response to them, right? The actions of my offender, that's where the pain comes from. That's where the hurt comes from. My responses feel like an afterthought. The deed is done. The damage is done. My responses don't change the situation. I can't undo what's happened. So so what he has done looks like the log, and my response to it looks like the speck. And Jesus says, not so. You've got to start here. Start with the response. Start with the response. I simply can't change my brother. I was pastoring in Lanigan, Saskatchewan, and I was having a mess of a situation one year. And my dad used to drive out once in a while. It was about 60 miles from where he pastored, a little prairie town. And he would come out, and we would go to May's Restaurant and have a coffee. You could buy coffee for 10 cents, and you could refill it as often as you wanted at that little coffee thing. You don't get deals like that just anywhere. We were sitting one day, and I talked for about 45 minutes about everybody and how rotten everybody was and how, how mistreated I was and blah, 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 blah. And he just sat there, and after a while, he stirred his coffee, and he looked at me, and he said, you know, of all the people in the universe, there's only one person you can do very much about. And he meant me. 
only one person you can change. Only one heart you can affect. There is something, Jesus says, in my own eye. I'm not seeing it as very major or very important. What is it? Well, probably if I've been mistreated by my brother, what I need to remove from my own life is my natural reaction of anger, vengeance, toward being so horribly mistreated, so unfairly. Jesus says, focus there. Start there. As long as I continue to frame my problem by the actions of my brother rather than my response, I will never become Christ-like. I think this is what Jesus means. He has this phrase that all of us quote and nobody ever stops to analyze. But in Matthew 10, Jesus said, whoever does not take his cross... And follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life, there it is. What is that? What is losing your life? How do you lose? Do you lose it like I lost my car keys and I can't find it somewhere on the sofa? Is that how you, is that what Jesus means? No, no. What does it feel like for Don Horbin to lose his life? Well, you'll know when I face mistreatment without any kind of retaliation. That's losing your life. When you face mistreatment, when your rights are taken without any retaliation on your part, you are learning what Jesus meant when he said, you have to lose your life. And then he said, that's how you find it. Three. You cannot stand in God's grace without extending God's grace on the same terms you receive it. There are some really striking words that come at the end of the Lord's Prayer, and because we usually want to end our Sunday night sermon on a high note, we stop with, Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Jesus didn't actually stop there, if you've ever read it. It goes further. And these are the words you will find. Matthew 6, 14. If you forgive others their trespasses, that's because that's what we just prayed, right? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Don't emphasize the first part of the sentence when we do it at the close of the service. Emphasize the second part of the sentence. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. There's a lot of people that feel like Jesus must have made a mistake because it, that just seems to be a denial of, of the freeness of grace. It seems to make like we earn grace somehow. It, it doesn't sound like gospel, Pastor Don, when you read those words. And I think probably the confusion comes from, from misinterpreting two words and thinking they mean the same thing. The words are free and unconditional. Those two words are not synonyms. They do not mean the same thing. 
Here's how I think the scriptures distinguish those two terms. God's grace is absolutely free. Not by works, Paul writes. You know, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. God's grace is absolutely free. As far as I know, it is never unconditional. Think of your own salvation. Were there absolutely no conditions on the free grace you received when you came to Christ? Did you have to believe the gospel? Did you have to repent of your sins? Did you have to acknowledge in some way Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? Well, the obvious answer, I think, to all those questions, even if you're, forget Arminian Calvinistic camps, on both sides, I think the obvious answer to those questions is, yes, you you did somehow meet those conditions. Now, none of those things earned your salvation. It was and will always be free. You didn't die for your own sins, but the gift wasn't unconditional. It was free, but it wasn't unconditional. The same idea is presented in these words from Jesus. We could never do anything to earn God's forgiveness. I never have and you never have. His forgiveness is free to all who will receive it, but it's not unconditional. You don't pay for it. But if you want to stand in God's free grace in Christ Jesus, then you must extend the same free grace to those who wrong you, those who sin against you. So in other words, we have come back to where we started this teaching. I can't accept the salvation of the cross without taking up the pattern of the cross. Part of the life of the cross. Part of receiving the gracious power of its work in my heart is embracing the terms of a crucified life. And right at the heart of it, the one who I say I'm following, the one whose life like a branch abiding in the vine. So, so if, you've got, if you've got a branch in a vine and it's uh, an apple tree and you've got a branch there, it's not going to grow roses or figs. Why? Well, because the, the life that is in the vine is the life that flows into the branches. I know there's grafting and stuff, but give me a break. I'm talking about a normal tree. Whatever, whatever the life of the tree is, that's what the branch gets. And if I'm following Jesus, if I say, I have received his life, eternal life, I have received his life into my heart, what will it look like? Well, it will look like one who before its, his shears was dumb and didn't strike back. Do you have the life of Jesus in your heart? Well, yes, Pastor Don, that's what salvation is. Well, then, let me tell you what that looks like when you're mistreated. Do you see the linking? We're not talking about earning anything. We're talking about how life flows. If you're not going to be a church that just talks about grace, but if we're going to be a church that lives in grace, that's what the dynamic is. That's the process. That's what that grace looks like when it gets fleshed out in people like you and like me. It's the only kind of life Jesus imparts. Four. 
What forgiveness looks like. We're almost done. I, I wasn't going to do this, but I find over and over again, people will say things to me like, you know, I did forgive so-and-so. Um, it's just best we don't speak to each other. So I thought, let's talk about forgiveness. Let's talk about real forgiveness and what it looks like. Instead of just using the word, isn't forgiveness wonderful? Let's talk about what it looks like. I have three or four thoughts here. I'm just going to go quick. A, forgiveness is for truly guilty people. I would forgive him, Pastor Don, but you don't understand. He really meant to do this. Well, if he didn't mean to, if it was an accident, then there's nothing to forgive, right? Accidents happen. You carry a little baby, you pat the baby on the back, you're wearing your suit, and it spits up on your shoulder. Well, that's not an issue of forgiveness. That's what babies do. Be thankful it was the good end. You know? That's what babies do. I have nothing to forgive that baby for. If I'm walking out of here tonight, and you walk up to me and say, Pastor Don, that message stunk, and you spit all over me. Well, there's something I need to forgive, right? There's, there's intent. There's intent. So forgiveness is for guilty people. Let's start there. You need to forgive the person when and only when there is no other explanation for his or her actions than meanness toward you. There. Now you've got a forgiveness issue. When it can't be justified, now you have a forgiveness issue. Forgiveness is for the truly guilty. B. Forgiveness means I will not allow myself to cherish feelings or thoughts of ill will or bitterness after I have forgiven the person who has wronged me. I have to forgive from my heart. I won't read the verse. It's Matthew 18, 33 to 35. Forgive your brother from your heart. Pastor Don, you, I, I, I would like to forgive so-and-so. I'm afraid that if I... I'm afraid that, that I won't be able to change the way my heart feels. I wish I could, but I don't know if I can. I understand that then start. Forgive the truly guilty person. Make it a matter of prayer. Do the best you can in forgiving that person from your heart and pray and allow and give the Holy Spirit time to change the way you feel toward that person, which is why Jesus said, pray for the one who despitefully uses you. Did you hear those words? Despitefully uses, abuses. Pray for that person. That's how a change of heart happens. Three, forgiveness means I won't bring the matter up with you ever again. You can't forgive someone and keep the wrongdoing handy for when you need it down the road. That's just extortion. God won't bless it. You can't give forgiveness and then take it back when it doesn't accomplish what you'd like. I love Isaiah 43, 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. How good is that? So, when we get to heaven and we're all standing in line, and it comes my turn... And 
And Ron Dyer says, How is Horbin getting in? I worked with him. He did this and this and this and this. And that part of it, of course, is just a joke. But this part isn't. Where, where God will look up and say, I, I'm, I have no record of what you're talking about. Oh, man. I'm sorry. I don't, I, I don't have any of that. I see the righteousness of Jesus all over Horbin. You might not believe that, but you're going to hear it one day. That's what forgiveness means. It's like it didn't happen. I won't bring it up. Four. This is important. Forgiveness means I will not tell others about what you did to me. This is needed in church circles. I can't forgive you and tell other people what you did at the same time. Everybody hear that? I can't forgive you and tell others what you did to me at the same time. This is, this is what makes gossip a sin. What makes gossip a sin is it's a denial of forgiveness. It's a denial of the life of Jesus. It's not just that someone's going to be embarrassed or someone's feelings are hurt. That's true enough. But the, but the damage is, I, I don't understand what forgiveness is. And if I don't understand what forgiveness is, and I'm not truly forgiving you, then my understanding from Jesus' words is I'm also not receiving forgiveness, which I need. Five, last point. Seek peace and subdue enemies with love. Romans 12, 18 to 21. If possible, as far as it depends on you. You've had situations, so have I, where you, you can't make something right no matter how hard you try. You don't have to whip yourself every night when you go to sleep. But as much as you can, live peaceably with all. This you can do. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Okay, so that's that's. God's job. By the way, just because something is forbidden for me doesn't mean it's forbidden for God. A lot of people think that. Vengeance I am never to take. God is perfectly obligated to take. Why is that? Because I never get the whole story right. I don't have all the facts, and I'm not perfectly just. God knows all the facts, all the details, all the situations, is perfectly righteous in everything that he does. There is someone who can take vengeance safely. In this room, there is no one who can take vengeance safely. We all get that, right? That's, that's the difference. So you, if, if you wrong me and I feel the need to strike back in any way, it might just be sullying your reputation by saying things to other people. But if I have to take Vengeance in any fashion at all, every act of vengeance is first and foremost an act of unbelief. Because I do not believe I can leave you with the Lord. To the contrary, 
If you're in it, here's what we do. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let me close with two thoughts. It's always God's will and the Christian's responsibility to create and maintain peaceful relations as much as I possibly can. I will not do anything to provoke trouble, and I will not do anything to protract trouble. Secondly, subdue enemies by the power of Christ's love. I am specifically called upon by Jesus to find people who have mistreated me the most and to work to bless them the most. Bless those who persecute you. Bless those and be like children of your heavenly father, Jesus said. Everyone said...